Let's turn to Isaiah, the seventh chapter. I know that this time of year we have a lot of what's going on in our mind. And I think one of the purest things about this Christmas season is the idea of gift giving. Because the greatest gift that was ever given was given to us from the Lord when Jesus, his son, became flesh. And I want to talk to you this morning about the virgin birth. Isaiah, the seventh chapter, we're going to begin reading in verse one. And as you turn there, I just want to point out that it's interesting to me that the articles of faith of this church and of others that we have preached to you about, the old Baptist articles of faith, it's interesting to me that I don't think I've ever read one that said we affirm and believe in the virgin birth. That doesn't mean that we don't believe it, okay? But I just think it's one of those things that was a given. It's what we would call a no-brainer. If you're a believer in Christ, the only way you can be a believer in Christ in sincerity and truth is you believe in the virgin birth, the immaculate conception. So I thought that was interesting that the articles of faith just don't address that. But it's not because we don't believe it. It's just because it's a no-brainer. I don't think it's a no-brainer anymore, though. Not with all of the misinterpretations of the Bible that are out there that refer to Mary as a young woman rather than as a virgin. That is not to be overlooked, and that is intentional when you see that. That's why it's so important that we maintain our hold on the King James translation that gives you what you need from the Hebrew and from the Greek. So let's talk about the virgin birth. Isaiah 7, I want to set the context here, and then we'll talk about what it's referring to. And then we'll go to the New Testament. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So Syria and Israel have come together to attack Judah. And that didn't happen a whole lot. Israel and Judah basically most of the time left each other alone because they were cousins. You understand? That would have been a family fight, in many ways like a civil war. Verse 2, And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. You know, Syria's leagued up with Israel. Ephraim is another word for Israel. And his heart was moved, the house of David. His heart was moved in the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Sherashabub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field, and say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, that's Israel and Syria, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, and of the son of Ramalia. Now if you'll skip on down with me to verse 7. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand. In other words, them coming against Judah is not going to work out for them. It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. He's basically saying they're just chasing each other's tails, is what he's saying, basically. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim or Israel be broken, that it be not a people. That is a prophecy that the nation of Israel would be no more. Remember, Israel is to the north, and Judah is to the south. Judah will remain a nation a few hundred years after Israel is no more. Remember in the days of King Solomon's son, the nation was split into two, Israel and Judah. And so here, Isaiah is telling 
Judah telling the house of David, the king of Judah, he's saying, don't worry about these guys. They're not going to overtake you. The house of David is going to continue because the Lord has plans and purpose for the house of David, the descendants of David. And this nation is not even going to exist in 65 more years. It's going to be gone, which is exactly what happened. They shall not be a people. Going down to verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, This is to the king, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Now let me just say right there, when the Lord tells you to do something, like pray to Him, ask of Him, you ought to do it. Because here's a guy who got the message straight from heaven by the mouth of the prophet, and he said, Ask of a sign of the Lord. The Lord will give you something in the sky or in the earth, which the Lord has done many times in the Old Testament. And Ahaz is so faithless. He says, oh, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to tempt the Lord. And watch what the Lord's response is in verse 13. And Isaiah said, Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? He's saying, Ahaz, you are ridiculous. You're wearying God because God has given you this great opportunity to ask to have a sign shown to you. And Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask. Now watch verse 14. And, and you know, this might be a grudge prophecy. It, it almost sounds like a grudge prophecy. It, Ahaz wouldn't ask, but the Lord says, I'm going to give you one anyway. Good grief, I'm going to give you one anyway, and it's going to be of my choice. And it is a, as we say, it's a whopper. It's a big one. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I read that so you can get a little bit of the background here. I think it's very important to understand the political turmoil and the upheaval and the lack of focus on God that was taking place in the days of Ahaz. Now, just to remind you of who Ahaz is, his father was a fellow named Jotham. It says that in the first verse. Jotham, in his reign, he reigned for, I want to say, about 16 or so years. And in his reign, he never entered the temple. He never went to worship God. He never went to church. You say, well, that's strange. The reason he didn't is because of what happened to his father, which would be Ahaz's grandfather, and that is Uzziah, who reigned for 52 years. Long time. And for the most part, Uzziah was a fantastic king until he got to the end of his life, and he got cocky, and he got prideful, and he thought he was the man, and he thought he held sway over the people and could do anything in the favor of God, and he did something he shouldn't do. He went into the temple, and God struck him with leprosy. He went in, not just in the temple, but in the Holy of Holies where only the priests were supposed to go. This was, you know, 20 or so years before when he did this. And God struck him with leprosy and he, he was a leper until he died. This is the grandfather of Ahaz. I'm telling you that so that you'll understand a little bit of the history of what's going on here. So the grandfather, because he did something that was against the Lord, against the Mosaic law, he was given leprosy and died. He had to be separated from his family. And so the son of Uzziah comes along and he doesn't go to church because of what happened to dad. You get that? It's a generational curse, not brought on by God, but brought on by the actions of men, of people. That ought to be a lesson for us in the church of God. 
No matter how bad things get, no matter how dark things become, no matter how somebody says something to you they shouldn't say or does something to you they shouldn't do, we should hang on to the church of God. But our tendency is to go away. You know, when bad times come, I'm just going to cut loose. Here is the son of the man who got leprosy who will not go to the temple. He said, that's bad. It gets worse. Because in the reign of the grandson, who reigned for about 16 years, from age 20 to 36, he promoted and supported abortion. He didn't just promote and support it. He put his own child through the fire. He murdered his own child for the sake of false worship. He sacrificed to false gods. He experienced civil war in the days of his reign of Ahaz. This is what's going on when Isaiah gives this prophecy. And he also suffered the death of another son in that war. And he practiced politics, bribery, backdoor deals, political chicanery, things like that. He practiced those things. And then worst of all, his grandfather died a leper because of where he went into the Holy of Holies. His father would not go to the temple, would not go to church. And then Ahaz shuts the door to the temple so nobody can go. Boy, that's tough, isn't it? You see, whenever you follow your nature and whenever you go after the things that, that go against God, it leads to things like that and it becomes a generational curse. He shut up the door to the house of God. So when Isaiah comes, Isaiah prophesied for a long time, possibly 80 years. That's a long ministry, isn't it? And he prophesied in the, in the dying days of the nation of Israel. And you might say also the coming dying days, the onset of the dying days of the nation of Judah. And during his reign, see, he prophesied in the reign of Uzziah who got leprosy. And you may recall Isaiah the 6th chapter, just, you know, this Isaiah the 6th chapter happened about 20 years before this. And that's whenever in the year that King Uzziah died, who was a good king up until he went into the Holy of Holies. Until the year that Uzziah died, that's when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. What a message to get from God at the end of a 52 year reign of a mostly good king when everything was in turmoil and there's trouble coming. The next king's not going to go to the temple, and the king after him is going to shut the doors to the temple. That'd be tough on a preacher now, on a prophet. That'd be tough. So, you see the background here? This prophecy is given in the midst of upheaval, darkness, turmoil, terrible things. Israel has attacked Judah with Syria. And, of course, Isaiah says 65 years, Israel won't even be around. And then the king who is asked to tell us what sign you want. Tell the Lord what sign you want. He wouldn't even ask. So the Lord gives the sign. And in the midst of a threat to end the nation of Judah from their own cousins, you get arguably one of the greatest prophecies since the Garden of Eden. Remember in the Garden of Eden, you say, how in the world can it go all the way back those thousands of years? You remember the Garden of Eden right after the fall when mankind, when Adam violated the one law of God. And they realized that they had fallen from grace, if that's a good way to put it, and they hid themselves and God comes upon them and then He pronounces the curses. You remember that? He curses the serpent first. On thy belly you will, you will crawl. And there will be enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. That was the first prophecy of the coming Messiah. At the dawn of time, right after everything really got messed up and 
All of the darkness that you see out there today, all of the trouble, all of those things that are going on out in the world that come from sin, that come from Satan, that come from the trouble that started there in the Garden of Eden, that is where the root of the problem goes back to. But in the midst of that darkness, the Lord gave them hope. And don't you ever forget that, child of God. Here is a time we're looking at that was political upheaval, turmoil, politics, bribery, abortion, uh, terrible things are going on in the nation of Judah, which is God's chosen nation. And not only that, in the very house, the very house that, is, that God is going to bring the Messiah through. This guy, it's not that he won't go to church, but he has shut the doors to the church, to the temple. That's some terrible leadership. Terrible darkness is going on. And not only that, the king who shut the doors to the temple won't even ask of God a sign when God says, ask of me a sign. That is rebellion at its worst. But now you see a little bit about why he wouldn't ask for a sign. You know, he's thinking back to what happened to granddaddy. He's thinking back about what happened to dad. See, he's living in the past. You don't want to live in the past, child of God. You hear people say, oh, if we only had the good old days. I will admit, I have had some good old days. There were some times that I think back on, you know, if I could just go back to those moments in time, they were great. There were some great moments. But I can't go back. I'm not a time traveler, and neither are you. So if we pine away for the good old days... We're going to miss the blessings that are here now. If they had pined away for the days when Uzziah in his 52-year reign, when things were good, oh, if we only had those days back. I believe that's what Isaiah was doing when, the, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up in the year that Uzziah died. He's thinking, what are we going to do? How are we ever going to make it? We're not going to be able to push through this. But the Lord showed him himself in those days, and Isaiah bit the dust. <laughs> if you're living in the past... You're going to miss the blessing that is here right now because in some of the worst darkness that has ever existed on this earth, that's when the Lord deals with us in such intimate and wonderful ways. And that is exactly what He does here. Arguably one of the greatest prophecies and the most descriptive prophecies of what He meant when He said the seed of the woman because the woman doesn't have a seed, right? The seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Here he says, what that means is a virgin shall conceive. Ah, oh, all the people that read the word of God in those days went, oh. That's where their minds went. Immediately their minds went to the Pentateuch, to the book of Moses, where the first five books of the Bible, they would think back to the dawn of time. That's what he meant when he said the seed of the woman. And we've been thinking all these years that we were going to live good enough or put forth you know, somebody that's good enough to fulfill that messianic prophecy. That's not the case. God's going to have to fulfill that himself. And he said, a virgin shall conceive. So we come to it. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Let's break this down and talk about it. The word sign is the word picture in the Hebrew of an ox and two cross sticks. X marks the spot. So what that means is whenever someone was plowing in the field with their ox, they would set some type of sign or X at the end of where they were going. So they would keep their eyes on that X and plow a straight row. So when they arrived at the X, it was X marks the spot. It was the end of the row. It was something significant to keep the furrow going straight. Don't lose sight of the fact that this was also the planting of seed. Y'all get that? You know, this was the, the planting of the holy seed of God in the Virgin Mary. That's what he's referring to. 
And here the sign itself means an ox being led along with the driver at the plow and the driver looking at a mark. X marks the spot so that they would plow a straight line. Nobody here except maybe Brother Furman back there and a few others. I don't want to leave anybody out. But there's hardly anybody here, and maybe some of the folks here on third or fourth row back, have ever actually plowed in a field. I have not. Now, I've done it with a tractor, but I'm talking about with a, you know, a mule or a horse or, you know, an ox. That's not an easy thing to do. That field that I live in at the house right there, my grandmother told me that my granddaddy, it would take him about two and a half weeks to plow that field with a single plow pulled by a mule. And when I look at that, I just hang my head and say, I'd have just had to go jump in the river. <laughs> There's just no way I would have had the patience to do that. But round and round and round he would go to plow that into planet. Now, when you're plowing a garden, you know, you're plowing those furrows and coming back down the line. If you're driving a tractor or if you're driving an ox or a mule, you can't look down. You've got to look up to see where you're going. Otherwise, you're just going to have the most crooked furrow that you've ever seen. That's what he's saying here. He is saying the sign that I will give you will be like X marks the spot. It will plow a straight furrow. The virgin conception literally is X marks the spot. And as I said, it harkens back to the seed of the woman. This is what it means. Now the word virgin right there, the root of that word is the Hebrew word helim, which means something kept out of sight or concealed. It's also a reference to the womb. Let me just say this about the way that the King James translation, I'm going to promote the King James translation. The language that the King James translation uses is so, it's, it's a romantic language and it's so above board. You know, when the kids hear, the little kids hear certain terms, they'll, they'll go, oh, I don't really know what that means. And then when the adults hear certain terms, they'll be like, I know exactly what that means. You know, it's not the generic medical term that's so cold sounding and so medical sounding you know womb carries such a beautiful meaning to it that's what the word of god presents that's what the king james translations presents and by the way as i said already in the other translations they don't even refer to to mary as a virgin but as to a young woman and there is nothing miraculous well i know look let me let me qualify that it is a miracle when a child is conceived and comes into the world that's a miracle in and of itself but it's a, an, a super incredible miracle whenever a virgin conceives. And there's only been one that has ever done that. So we have to maintain the sanctity of the language and of what the Word of God teaches us. It's preserved. And the womb is what's a reference there when it talks about the Virgin Mary. Listen to this. I, I want to make a few comments about the womb. I like what Brother Luke said one time about the marital relationship. He said it's secret and it's sacred. Okay, And the womb is secret and sacred. You see, you don't have a generic term or some medical term here that just sounds, sometimes it could even sound embarrassing to say it. It's the womb. And in Webster's 1828 dictionary, the word woman is defined as a combination of two words, womb and man. And so you literally have womb Man, woman, you see that? It's also life-giving. Genesis 3 and chapter 20 said that Eve, she would be the life-giver. That was what her name means, life-giver. And it's amazing. When conception occurs on the womb, there is a new life form growing in the womb. 
It's also very notable that you remember this about the womb. It is a seat of compassion in the Word of God. It's a seat of emotions also, but God's most intense description of His mercy. Don't ever forget this. Because some would say, well, because God is you know, male, then you know, He can never identify with what a mother goes through or whatever. Listen, when God gives the most intense description of His mercy, He refers to tender mercies, and the definition of that is a babe in the womb. God understands. It's the seed of compassion. There was a book written by a man named... Dr. Thomas Verney, the book was called The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. And in that book, there was a portion that talked about sort of an experiment that took place. It was not intended, but it just happened that when a little baby girl infant was born, the child, the baby, would not nurse with the mother. The, the baby would just turn away, physically turn its head away. This is an infant now, just, you know, hours old. And so the doctor was curious about this, and he, with the consent of another mother, he presented that baby that was turning its head away from its biological mother, and the baby instantly nursed this other mother who consented to try this. And so the doctor went back and spoke to the biological mother and said, did you want this baby? And she said, no, I wanted to abort this baby, but my husband wanted this baby. And, of course, the writing, he said, well, that's just conjecture. Maybe it is, but the baby had rejected the mother because the mother had rejected the baby. You see, I'm not saying that happens in every circumstance, but it is something to think about. The womb is referred to as the seat of compassion, the seat of compassion, the seat of even emotions. See, and those of you that have born a child or carried a child, you you understand that because you've experienced that firsthand. But you don't have to experience it firsthand to understand what I'm saying. That's why the Lord uses that as a description of the most compassionate form of his mercy, tender mercies. The womb is also a place of sanctuary, of protection. Psalm 139 and 15, David said, I was made in secret. It's a secret place. It's a protected place. It was intended to be. And I like this description of the womb. It's also a place of hospitality. One of the women that wrote on this in the commentary said that the womb is a room. And you're walking around with a special guest in a guest room in the body, which is the temple of the Lord. That's pretty good, isn't it? It's a place of hospitality. I know some of you dear sisters who have carried babies to term, you know, nine months and so forth. You know, it, it was about time for that guest to go after a while, you know, when you, whenever you just couldn't bear it anymore. But that's a great picture of the womb. It's a place of hospitality. And Mary's womb was chosen by a sovereign God to be the guest chamber in a place where the sacred seed of God would be housed for nine months. That's amazing, isn't it? The name Emmanuel... He said, a virgin shall conceive, and that holy thing, that son that would be born, shall be called Emmanuel. And that's the only reference in the Word of God that Jesus never even referred to himself that way, but that's what God refers to his son as Emmanuel, which means God with us, or with us is God. And that's interesting how it says with us is God because it means to be equally with, it means to accompany, it means to be before, beside, by, among, toward, and I love this, in spite of. <laughs> because of our, the sin of Adam, because of the, the fact that every child that comes forth from the womb that is born of the line of Adam is going to come forth with sin, to me that says that the Lord Emmanuel came to us in spite of what we are to experience things that we experience, and yet He was without sin. You see, it is so essential, so important that we believe in the virgin birth because the womb was secret and it was sacred. 
It was untouched. And that is the place, the most sacred and secret place that God himself chose to plant the seed of God and Christ himself, Emmanuel, comes forth. And listen to me, it does not mean that Christ was not there before. The Son, the Father, and the Spirit has, have always been in existence. It's hard to explain that. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, the greatest theologian of all time, says it's a mystery. And you can't fully explain that. But understand, Christ did not become Christ. He did not become the Son of God whenever the seed of God was placed inside Mary. He just took on a different form. And that's Bible right there. He took on a different form. He had never had flesh before through the way that we understand conception and flesh coming upon a person. Mary's womb was chosen by a sovereign God to be the guest chamber to house the most sacred of gifts, Emmanuel. Let's talk about that immaculate conception. If you want to turn over in your Bibles to Luke, the first chapter, this is where we read about the fulfillment of that prophecy. By the way, that's 600 years or so later. 600 years. That's a lot of coverage in the sermon, isn't it? It's also a lot of coverage from the Word of God. And Think about that. This refers back to the Garden of Eden where the seed of the woman was prophesied to bruise the head of the serpent. Now we go about, how what, 3,500 years forward and you got Isaiah prophesying that a virgin shall conceive. And then 600 years after that, the angel Gabriel comes and begins to tell Mary, the chosen one, about what's about to happen. Luke, the first chapter, verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Remember that message about a virgin conceiving was to who? It was to the house of David 600 years before. And the virgin's name was Mary. Notice where it says the virgin was a spouse to a man. The way that things worked with marriages and engagements back in these days in this culture was, was quite different than, than the way we see it today. When a couple became engaged, the law looked at it as though they were already married, even though they hadn't had the ceremony yet. They didn't move in together, you know, but they had an engagement and that was it. That was marriage. So if you broke off the engagement, it was equivalent to a divorce. Understand that. It's very important. That we understand that. So she is espoused. She is betrothed. She is engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. By the way, Mary was also of the house of David on a different descendant, a different child of David. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Now, this wasn't one of those little chubby winged things that sits on your mantle. Okay? Matter of fact, there's nowhere in the Word of God that even says that angels have wings. But anyway, that's a story for another day. But this is not one of those little chubby things that come in there, you know, with a big smile on his face. This is a warrior of God, a messenger of God. This is a warrior who has battled and fought against the minions of Satan and Satan's angels and devils for, for years and centuries. And he is fierce to behold. That's why every time when an angel appears in the Word of God, people are afraid. They think they're dead. And when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary. By the way, that's the same thing that God told Isaiah to tell King Ahaz. He said, Fear not. So here the angel says to Mary, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. There were thousands of virgins in the nation of Judah, in this nation at this time. But God chose one. What a beautiful picture of election, right? 
You say, well, I don't know why he didn't. That's not fair. You know, the ACLU would file a lawsuit because he didn't favor all the other virgins, you know? God can do what he pleases, and he also always does it right. It was right for him to choose Mary. Mary was a sinner like everyone else. But God in his sovereignty, in election, God chose her to be the bearer of the holy seed. And he said, Mary, thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Watch the information that's given here. About seven things that are given here. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. About seven things that he tells there that are amazing about the son that would be born of Mary. And you know what's on Mary's mind? She's trying to figure this out. She's thinking, wait a minute. I'm engaged to be married. And she says what any young woman in this situation would say. How shall this be? Seeing I know not a man. Don't you love the above board language of the King James translation? She says, I've not been intimate with a man. How is this going to happen? Seeing I know not a man. And she gets more information. The angel answers and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. This is God's Son taking on the form of flesh in the womb of the virgin. The world is fascinated with this. Y'all know that, right? You got any Star Wars fans out there? Grew up on Star Wars. Han Solo was my favorite. But George Lucas is fascinated with this. You remember when you get the backstory about how you know, Darth Vader came to be? What's it about? There was a virgence in the force. See, a virgin conceived. Where do you think he got that from? That wasn't some amazing new thing that he came up with. He got it from the Word of God. What about... Harry Potter, the chosen one. What about things like the Matrix? You know, you've got the one, you know. I can go on and on because a lot of your literature and different things carry that idea, you know, of there's a chosen one. There's one that's above others. It comes from the Word of God. It's the purpose of all purposes. It goes back before the dawn of time that we're fascinated with that. Where do you think Nietzsche came up with his Superman from? He robbed it from God. And you see what men do with that. Look what Hitler did. He used Nietzsche's premise of a superman to promote a super race of men and women. And he tried to wipe out an entire race that he thought was not worthy, the Jews. See, it's that superman mentality. And let me tell you, we've already got a superman. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. How to understand something like this where God has been in existence before, wherever He has been the Son of God for all of time, and yet He takes on the form of flesh. It's, it's a mystery. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. It is amazing. It's incredible to think that God would come and take on flesh. Now you can read in some of the mythology and different things that are out there how maybe sometimes you would see where you know, there would be, let's say in the Greek mythology, you know, there would be a, a half man, half God. Let me tell you something. The Lord Jesus Christ was all man and all God. None of this half stuff. And the gods and all the mythology are above everyone. And they won't get their hands dirty down here. They'll just manipulate and mess with the people. And of course, that's, none of that's real. It's all fiction. But that's what the minds of men come up with. I want you to know your God, the, the only God, took on flesh so that He could experience the things that you experience. That He could experience the emotions and the hunger and the thirst. Don't ask me how to explain that. How God Himself could experience those things. But He did. And it's a mystery. And the Apostle Paul said He was made to be flesh. The man Christ Jesus. He was all man and He was all God. 
It's very hard to describe a place you've never been, and it's very hard to comprehend something that big. But we can stand back and we can just marvel at it. Trying to comprehend something like that made me think about years ago in the 90s when my brother and I, we went out west. And that whole trip out west, and we rode all around California, you know, Grand Canyon, all this different stuff. So my brother Chris said, hey, look, we got to see the Joshua tree. We got to see the Joshua tree. That's all he talked about was the Joshua tree, oldest tree in the history of the world. You know, this, I mean, all of this misinformation that he was giving me about the Joshua tree. We got to hit the Joshua tree. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, the tree of life, you know, the, the Garden of Eden with these gigantic trees. I'm thinking this is going to be amazing. And he described it to me. Oh, this is just amazing. This tree. we got to see this tree. And all about the history of this tree. And I was like, man, this is incredible. You know, he's telling me about something he's never seen before. And so we finally get to the Joshua Tree entrance. And I pull into a gas station to get some gas. And there was a UPS guy there. And I said, you know, Mr. UPS guy, we're looking for the Joshua Tree. And the UPS guy goes, huh <laughs> Go that way. And I thought, well, that's strange. He, he laughed at me. I don't like being laughed at any more than the next man. So here we go. We take off in the direction the UPS man sent us, and we turn into the Joshua Tree National Monument, and there's like 10,000 little scraggly desert-looking trees called the Joshua Trees. There is no big, huge tree of life Joshua Tree. He was describing to me something he'd never seen, and I was so disappointed. I was like, are you kidding me? You made this out to be the oldest tree. That's there. I bet that little tree right there, it's about as, you could put your hand around it just about, you know, two hands around it, and it looks like it's maybe, you know, about 20 years old. The pine trees back in Alabama, the oak trees are so much prettier than this little scraggly desert tree. I was so disappointed, but we had a good laugh over it. He was describing something to me he had never seen. And I'm describing something to you that I've never seen. I've never seen heaven. I've never seen where Christ existed before the foundation of the world. I've never seen Christ in that form. And I have not physically seen with my eyes Christ in the form of flesh. But I read about it in the Word of God, and I want to tell you about it. And because it brings hope. You know, Isaiah had not seen that either. He had not seen Christ in the flesh. He had not seen all of those things that God had told him about. He'd seen some miracles in his time, but he was just telling, conveying something that he had never seen. And child of grace, I'm conveying to something to you I've never seen before the foundation of the world, the glory that God was in, and I've never seen Christ in the flesh. But by the eye of faith and by the Word of God, I can tell you about that. And we can enjoy what God tells us about the, the Word of God, about the Son of God. John, the first chapter, says that the Word was made flesh... God the Son was made flesh. That's a miracle. It's amazing to think all those false gods out there were above and beyond anyone. But our God came down here, got His feet dirty, got His hands dirty, and experienced the things that we experience here in this life. But He was without sin. You say, well, I can't identify with the Lord. Yes, you can. If you'll look to the Lord and see what He did, how He was made flesh, you can see that you identify with the Lord. But more importantly, He identifies with you. God identifies with you. Everything that you've ever been through, every emotion that you've ever felt, everything that you've ever gone through in this life, you say, well, I thought He was perfect. He was perfect, but on the cross, He suffered those things, you see? The sin that impacts you, the sin that affects you, the sickness that has affected our congregation, and so many are out. Those things that affect you and hurt you, those sins and the results of that were laid upon Him on the cross. 
So all through his life, as he went through the 33 and a half years that he was here, he experienced this and this and this. He went through all those things. And then on the cross, he experienced the ultimate shame, the ultimate effect of sin, because 2 Corinthians tells us he was made to be sin. Who knew no sin? So I hope you're not disappointed. <laughs> like I was disappointed over the Joshua tree. Elohim, God, takes on flesh. A different form than he had ever experienced before. You see, this was a season of secrets. You know, the, the Lord didn't send Gabriel to take out a billboard and broadcast. He didn't send him on the radio. There was no radio. The Lord went to the Virgin Mary through the angel Gabriel and gives that one little girl, one young woman who was a virgin, the message you're going to bear God in the flesh. If you look over the book of Matthew, the first chapter, as we bring our thoughts to a close here this morning. Matthew, the first chapter. Look at verse 18. I'm going to let you go a little bit earlier today. And here's why. Because if I was a seven, six, five-year-old boy on Christmas Eve, I would be sitting in the pew right now praying. I hope that preacher lets us go early. <laughs> and I'm not going to be a liar either, like, Say, well, I'm ready to close and do it about seven times. This is it, okay? So hang tight. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together. See the above board language right there? Everybody that knows what that means can figure it out, and everybody that doesn't know what that means can just continue to be confused and talk to your parents about it. <laughs> before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So what had happened to Mary? is the Holy Ghost had come upon her and the power of the Most High had overshadowed her. And a molecule, an atom, God was reduced down to the, reduced Himself down to the size of a molecule and entered into the secret and sacred place that was inside Mary to house the Lord, the guest chamber for the Lord. And that seed was planted and the miracle of the general miracle of birth was amplified to an, a supernatural degree, an infinite degree, because the Son of God is now growing, being, gestating in the womb of Mary. And Joseph is upset because Mary's beginning to show that she's expecting. Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. And when he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream and said to him, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. By the way, this is the same angel that appeared to Mary. This guy's been busy, hadn't he? By the way, it's the same angel that appeared to Daniel that told Daniel 400 and something years before that in 400 and something years, the Son of God is coming. But I digress. Let's stay on the ranch here. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. A virgin shall conceive. And here's that old Baptist language that we love, isn't it? This is one of those old Baptist honey holes. She shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Isn't that a glorious verse? That's the context of where this is set. We may hear that spoken and quoted a lot. I've quoted it and spoken it a lot. But understand, that's the context that a virgin shall conceive and Emmanuel will come from her. It is the seed of God. It's the Son of God. And that seed, that Son of God, shall save his people from their sins. Praise God for that. 
Now, all of this was done. You say, well, this is really tied to Isaiah, the seventh chapter. Let's read on. Now, all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. Now, I don't know for sure if the angel said that to Joseph, but I like to think that he did because it's right there in the context of the dream of where the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph in that dream. So, Joseph knows that this is the fulfillment of Isaiah the 7th chapter. Mary knows that that's the fulfillment of Isaiah the 7th chapter. And they know that this is a fulfillment from what happened in the Garden of Eden when the Lord said the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. I tell you, this has long-term implications, doesn't it? And child of grace, it has long-term implications for you and for me. You see, this is not just a promise claimed by those descendants of the house of David or the descendants of Judah. This is a promise to all of God's children and every kindred, tribe, and tongue and nation. That's a lot of children. There's a lot of children that the gospel can't get to. There's a lot of aborted children that nobody can get to but the Lord Himself. But Emmanuel, God with us, has secured the fact that His children will be with Him. No matter if the abortionist knife reaches them before they leave the womb, or if they die of sickness, if they die of tragedy, if they die, live to old age and die, whatever the case may be, she shall bring forth a son. And she did. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. And they did. For he shall save his people from their sins. Why? Because he was God in the flesh. Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him Mary, his wife. And knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. The book of Hebrews says that Christ came in the flesh so that he could experience everything that we experience in the flesh, yet he is without sin. And not just to experience those things, but to die for the sins of the children of Adam who belong to him. And they're adopted into that family by the sacrifice of of Christ. So God was with us so we would be with Him one sweet day. God was made flesh so that we in our flesh one day will be with Him. Don't overlook the virgin birth. Don't overlook the immaculate conception of the Son of God where God penetrated the womb of Mary and implanted the seed of God inside him just as a molecule or as an atom. And nine months goes by, he's born into the world. Twelve years go by, and you read a little bit about him in the temple when he was a 12-year-old boy. Eighteen years goes by, and the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ begins. Three and a half years go by, and he dies for your sins. God in the flesh dies for your sins. Three days and three nights go by, and what happens? God in His flesh is resurrected by His own power. And in His flesh, on the right hand of God today, the Son of God reigns and rules and is returning in the flesh. And I've said this before, as our song says, one of my favorite verses in any song that we sing, it says, "...shall see Him wear that very flesh on which my guilt was lain." 
His love intense, His merit fresh, as though but newly slain. You understand that the Lord Jesus Christ in His body, the man Christ Jesus in the flesh, stands as He appeared three days and three nights after He died on the cross. That's what He looks like. Now, I do not look like what I looked like at 33 and a half years old. I know y'all think I'm a lot more good looking now. <laughs> y'all must be asleep. That was really intended to be funny, but obviously that one bombed. I do not look like what I look like at 33 and a half years old. I'm looking rough. I don't like the mirror that Sister Tracy has that amplifies your face. Sometimes I look at it and I go, Gah! it looks like an ogre is in there. Give me the mirror that looks, makes it look like you're far away. I like to look in the car mirrors that say things are closer than they appear. I don't look like what I look like at 33 and a half. You don't look like what you look like if you've passed 33 and a half. But I'll tell you, by the grace of God, by the man Christ Jesus, by he that was made flesh, by Emmanuel, you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. You're going to look glorious in your body, in your flesh, because the Son of God was made flesh. If you believe that and have never made that public profession, we'll give you that opportunity as we stand and sing.